let's get rid of, rid of the term lens, all right? It gets thrown around a lot, and what it just means is bias, right? Which has now been made presentable, all right? So rather than viewing it through any lens, which is to say selecting a bias for yourself and then saying, this is my bias, you should love it and me, um, I'm going to say that uh, it's not clear to the inquiring mind what a good man is or uh, how a good man acts. And here I mean general, a human being. What, what is the best kind of human life? Well, uh, it's the welter of opinions that allows you to weigh and consider. And uh, musicians say that your ear is the final chord. You know what sounds good and what doesn't. Uh, you know the difference between dissonance and harmony and that the difference between dissonance and harmony is mathematical not one of opinion thus what I'm saying is something like this uh, everybody starts somewhere and uh, cuts through these great thinkers and these great thoughts at whatever pace they do and they can't help but engage in what we might call reflective equilibrium. You slide from one possibility to another. You look at the world as it might be under one set of rules or one set of descriptions, and then another. One of the things that makes this possible is that the world is subject to an infinite number of descriptions and redescriptions. God, or the mind of God, is different, would be different from ours because it has all possible descriptions and redescriptions. We just, we occupy a certain position, and yeah, inevitably we have some degree of perspective, and we improve our perspective by moving it in the direction of uh, an integrated human view. You know, like the big sigma, a summation of human judgments. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what I would say. Um, I learned from Jesus, I learned from Buddha, I learned from Socrates, I learned from Spinoza, I learned from Kant, I learned from Nietzsche, uh, I learned from Plato, but uh, I learned different things and at different times in my life. This next question comes from Instructions for Music. He says, does philosophy really serve a purpose outside of academia today? If not, how can we change that or does it need to be changed at all? Well, uh, um, yeah, uh, it organizes our thinking, uh, and rationality is the structure of our thinking, or, or of right thinking, uh, in the same way that sanity is the structure of right emotion. And uh, both are real things. And uh, philosophy is alive and well because here you are. I don't think you're a professor asking me if it's if it, it you know should be outside the academy. But the problem is it was never really inside the academy except for a, a few specialists that emerged in the 20th century who reduced philosophy to. Uh, matters of logic and mathematics uh, that didn't last very long you know, it was called logical positivism and yeah you had to pay 
your dues and learn a special lingo, uh, formal logic and stuff like that. But uh, philosophy is alive and well. The problem is, is that it's being practiced badly uh, for heuristic reasons by people who are straight ahead sophists. Uh, I think that's the general fact about uh, postmodern thinkers. I think that they're the heirs of the sophists. Uh, the really good ones are kind of entertaining, like Gorgias. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's a dead end. And I think it it creates the, the uh, conditions for its own, not only negation, but annihilation. And so... Uh, Okay, so the purpose of philosophy is to call things by their right names, to help us organize our thinking and thus organize our action. Uh, what we lack now is a coherent account of virtuous human actions. It's not that there aren't such things, it's that it's hard to get uh, a satisfactory consensus as to what these virtues are. But um, the only place it's going to come from is from people talking about it. Philosophy um, is useful in a classroom uh, because it informs all the other intellectual endeavors. But it's not restricted to a classroom. In the same way that uh, scripture is not restricted to a church, it's meant to be applicable to the world at large. The test of what your human character is, is how you deploy these ideas. The ideas themselves are instrumental. You get to figure out how to apply them, and that means uh, you need to have something like Aristotle's idea of phrenesis. You need good judgment. So, uh, yeah, if you want good judgment, ask philosophical questions. And if you want to get rid of philosophical questions, I think you're on a fool's errand. Do you want to go straight into the next question? Yeah. Okay, yeah. If, if it's a good one, tell me what it is first. Right. Um, Surprise it. He says, I would love to hear your thoughts on Schopenhauer and or Carl Jung. I would rather not do either. Not that either. one. Okay. I have a Schopenhauer lecture, which is coming. Okay. I never liked it, but I, I, I really loathe Schopenhauer for the same reason. He's a pessimist. It would be better if everybody had never been born. Mm-hmm. What do you think about uh, Young? Uh, Young, he's uh, well. Here's the deal. One, I don't I mean he's written voluminous stuff. I read a few things by him. Uh, he broke with Freud. He believed in something called the collective unconscious. So, in other words, remember when I told you about German, the German idea of collective subjects? Where right, we so, read yeah. Hegel. Right, we read Hegel. Well, you haven't. We, I didn't, haven't we read, didn't read Hegel yet. We read Kant though. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, Kant thinks that the categorical imperative applies not just to people and not just to God and the angels, but also to nations mm -hmm. because they're rational agents, okay? But they're not one person, they're collections of people, all right? So the German idea of a collective subject, all right, that's part of the baggage of German high philosophical thought, okay? Right. The idea that there is... Uh, uh, that there are subject, that there are collective subjects, and Hegel changes that and says, "I'm going to mass all those collective subjects into one 
meta collective subject that includes all, all the subjects. Wait, ooh, ooh, ooh. did did he coin the collective unconscious, or was that young? No, no, I'm coming to that. I've okay. got there. Okay. So now we have one big mind for the whole of humanity. Okay. Given that we have that one big mind for all of humanity, Freud is going to find out that there's an unconscious in the individual mind. Now, as you know, because you were studying Plato's Republic, that the city is like the man. What that means is sooner or later, some goddamn German is going to fuse these ideas and decide that not just individuals have an unconscious mind, but also collective subjects have an unconscious mind. All right. So he claims to be able to discern the collective unconscious. Well, I mean, maybe. Uh, and he says that it exists in the patterns we find in the world, in, in the human world, cross-culturally. Right. calls these things archetypes. Well, maybe. I mean, the problem is, how would you test any of this? I mean, suppose somebody said, no, it's not an archetype. Well, I mean... What do we say? Yes, it is. We know it isn't. What counts as, I mean, how do you know? Well, I haven't read him, so I wouldn't know. Okay, so, but that's my point. Uh, now, Jordan Peterson is closely associated with this. I don't want to pick a quarrel with him either way. So I haven't I seen was, any of his videos. I like. Um, I know that we get a lot of questions about Jordan Peterson. About I don't know anything about him. Uh, he fought against uh, the gender language law as a professor. Oh, I see. And that's what made him famous. But okay. he was also famous for insisting on uh, that uh, identity politics is dangerous. Okay. Right. Do you want to right. move into the next question? What's the next one, then? Yeah. Um, it's, do you feel that objective morality completely devalues slash is offensive to the human mind and humans in general? I don't know what well, he meant by that. <laughs> uh, it's a big stretch. Uh, being offensive to the human mind. Uh, if it is offensive to the human mind, I'm not the human mind spokesman. <laughs> uh, so I can just talk from my mind, and I don't find the description offensive. Uh, why would objective morality uh, offend anybody? Um, yeah, it says the, he's asking uh, um, if objective morality devalues the human mind. I don't know what he means by that. Well, why are we, again, why are we doing this question, then, if you see what yeah. I'm saying? All right. I mean, this is another one of those, unask the question, and then explain to me literally what you mean, not metaphorically what you mean. So this is offensive to the human mind. What are you jabbering about? But that's what I would do one-to-one. -one. Okay. Uh, here, yeah, let me say this. Uh, let's try this, because this, this will fuck people up. Dad claims that for... That for morality to be objective it needs to be able to construct true declarative sentences in which the predicate is ought not is and uh, the statement will claim to be a matter of fact justifiable with reference to other uh, evidence. And so here's an, uh, here's an example of a universal statement. It applies to everybody, which is one of the things I want out of this. And uh, nobody can sensibly deny it, which is another interesting thing. Here's the proposition. One ought to be persuaded by reasonable arguments. 
Now you see, one response to that is to punch the guy that says it in the nose. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is what it really means to agree that the, or to disagree that you don't have to be persuaded by reasonable arguments. But if you want to dispute this rather than fight about this, well then, what dispute can you have if you're not going to appeal to some standard, let's call that standard being reasonable, uh, and say, this is why I believe or disbelieve a given proposition, or I act or don't act in a particular way. This proposition, I think, is a matter of logical fact. Uh, Being reasonable is not one option among many. It's actually morally obligatory. We have the capacity to be reasonable, and we ought to be reasonable rather than saying, rather than, say, responding to reasonable arguments with uh, a blow to the head. Right. Okay, so uh, there, that's an example of... um, objective morality. One ought to be persuaded by reasonable arguments. Yes, we'll have to unpack what we mean by the word reasonable and also by the word ought, but that doesn't mm-hmm. make it false. Anyway, do you want to take a break before the next one? Well, what's the next one? Let me hear it. Um, this is a good one. I think you'll like it. Um, it says, I'd like to know his present personal take on the story of Abraham. I mean, this is just so fucking wrenching. Like, I mean, I have to talk about God. You, I mean, you and I have talked about that. It doesn't make any fucking yeah, sense. I mean, we talked about it in the Kierkegaard episode. I know we did, yeah. It's fucking, and, of course, that really brought out the screaming fucking whack jobs. <laughs> you see some of those people, yeah. you know, casting out Satan in the name of Jesus? Yeah, I know. <laughs> they cast they out Satan in the comment section, I know, because I'm the one who reads it. <laughs> I read it too, honey. I read every comment. I mean, most of them, more, at, least, at least half of them, um, make me ask myself the eternal question. What the fuck is wrong with people? Right? I mean, the stuff that pops into their head, what they stri- what strikes them is a, a, a response to my lecture that they're willing to show in public. <laughs> uh, it just makes you shake your head sometimes. So the next question is, who are your contemporaries that you've most admired, and who are the professors or teachers you've encountered in your academic development that had the biggest influence on you? Wow, that's a that's a great question. Um, until I was 18, I went to primary and secondary schools that were run by Catholic religious priests and nuns and brothers and such. There were some lay teachers, of course, but uh, um, most of my early upbringing was religious. Uh, from there, I went to the University of Chicago in uh, 1975 and <clears throat> just squeaked out and managed to graduate in 1979. And uh, this was very powerfully formative for me. Uh, I was looking for some modern alternative to Catholicism that uh, allowed me to speak on behalf of what might be called the wretched of the earth, the people on the, on the, that get the short end of the stick. Uh, I think that's something I carried over from Christianity. 
So uh, I liked Marxism, and I studied it very rigorously, very closely for a couple of years. So I knew all the texts, but I also knew uh, the uh, secondary interpreters and political act- actors in the Marxist tradition. Um, but that was actually a fringe thing. Uh, which is why at the University of Chicago and the people that you, that were on campus that I heard speak, that I learned from, that I took classes with, that I objected to, uh, um, it's an amazing galaxy of people. If you ever get a chance to read Saul Bellows' Ravelstein, all the guys in there <laughs> all right, were teachers or friends of the teachers of mine. They were part of what the uh, strange intellectual stew of University of Chicago was. Now, undergraduates at the University of Chicago then, I don't know if it's still true now, but God knows it might be, were an amazing collection, a truly astonishing uh, fricassee of uh, young adult idiot savants. Uh, Many of them (laughs) lacked capacities that you would expect young adults to have. On the other hand, they were also able to, at least some of them, bend spoons with their brain, which was a messy thing to see. If I may interrupt, so, I would say that that's kind of the experience I'm having right now. All my friends are um, idiot savants, but continue. Okay, okay well, that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, but here, the whole undergraduate class is you goddamn idiot savants. There's nobody here who's well-balanced. Um, uh, many of them are just barely housebroken, right? So, I mean, uh, we were an unlikely lot. Um, so, that, I mean, in some ways, you learn more from your classmates and from the intellectual environment you develop in. And uh, that was certainly true of my early primary and secondary education. And U of C had us read the classics, uh, I read the great books, and uh, that was very important in my development. And uh, in terms of teachers, I mean, there are great ones. Uh, there was Carl Weintraub. There was uh, Joseph Cropsey, and Alan Bloom, and uh, who else? Uh, I heard Mircea Eliade give a series of lectures, which is pretty amazing, too. He was on campus. And of course, although I didn't take his classes, uh, Uncle Milton, Milton Friedman was still alive and on campus. Uh, so there's a lot of free marketeers and a lot of libertarians and stuff like that in the mix. You know, uh, who else did I have? You know, uh, Herman Seneco, uh, an excellent uh, classicist. I had him for a, a number of classes, and I he helped teach me how to read. Um, you could never have a class like his nowadays at all, though, because he used to change. We used to have two-hour seminars, I mean, straight on through. It was a forced march, and uh, we went through some big books like War and Peace eventually. But um, he used to chain smoke all through the class, and he would light his uh, unfiltered cigarettes one after the other, so he wouldn't put down a full pack of Palm Alls um, in the two-hour class. No one complained because no one would have thought to complain because, well, you know, it wasn't a problem. <laughs> now I think it might well be a problem, but that's just me. Uh, 
So uh, it was a very different environment. People, I mean, had more latitude and they weren't quite as uh, at each other's throats. Uh, when we disagreed, it was more ironic than uh, I'm going to kill your family. <laughs> and I think that was actually, uh, <laughs> I think that was a wholesome, right? Yeah. I mean, you could believe anything there so long as you were going to accept the fact that people are going to attack you for it because it's, you have a whole undergraduate uh, cohort full of loony ideas. Uh, Carl Weintraub, who else did we have? We had a whole bunch of great ones. But uh, going to college at U of C in the 70s was a trip. Now from there, I went to uh, graduate school at Columbia. In between, I took a year off. It's the only year I've had off in my whole life. And I lived in Berkeley, California with a bunch of my friends. Uh, going back to the beginning of the question about um, who are your contemporaries that you've admired? Like people that are still alive. I'm, I'm not finished with you. Oh, okay. okay. Sorry. Okay. Um, in graduate school, uh, I had Eric Foner as a doctoral dissertation advisor, and uh, I have the greatest respect for Eric. I had the greatest respect for Eric then, and I do now. Uh, I have a high regard for his learning, and uh, I've always found him to be a uh, uh, an intelligent and thoughtful individual. Um, I also had Jim Shenton. He's gone now, but he helped guide an entire generation of history students at Columbia. Uh, I had Charles Larmore in the philosophy department because uh, my outside field was philosophy and he was just a young assistant professor then. And he was wonderfully brilliant. I learned a great deal from him. He was one of my examiners, my outside examiner on my uh, my oral exams. Uh, so I had a, a wonderful collection of teachers, and I was very lucky in that. And uh, from my from Columbia, I went and did a postdoc for two years at Johns Hopkins, and uh, the department chairman that hired me was Philip Curtin. And so Philip Curtin was very uh, important in my development in the same way that William McNeil, back when I was in college, was very important for my intellectual development regarding world history. So I had McNeil, I had, uh, uh, you know, I, I sat in on lectures from an amazing galaxy of people, and I was still able to do that as a graduate student and then as a postdoc. So I was very lucky to have uh, interesting minds, like, say, Jack P. Green, uh, at, at, at Hopkins around me, you know, and there's lots of interesting students to talk to as well. Uh, from there, I had a choice. Uh, I had, was offered a spot at Princeton in the uh, Council for the Humanities, and I was also offered a spot at the uh, Charles Warren Center for uh, American History at Harvard. I chose the uh, spot at Princeton because it would allow me to teach the great books and that's what I really like to do. The Harvard spot would have been better for my career but it, uh, and would have been certainly very stimulating but uh, it would have required that I focus on American history more than I was interested in doing at the time. It wasn't a great career move. It was a terrible career move but um, I've never really had a career. Uh, let's see. Um, who did I learn from when I was at Princeton? Boy, a lot of people. Uh, you know, there are so many. Um, there are people that came through, like Peter Gordon, who's now a professor at Harvard. 
friends of mine, and we both taught the same course. We you know we taught it together. Uh, there were people there that I learned from, like uh, Carol Riglow or uh, uh, Joyce Carol Oates. All right. Okay, but going back to um... so uh, now you want to know who my my uh, peers yeah. uh, that I was impressed with. Well. Um, I thought very and think very highly of uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil and I don't agree on everything, but that's good and wholesome. Uh, Neil gave the speech on behalf of the graduating class of PhDs at Columbia in 1991, and uh, it's like being named valedictorian, and I got a chance to read his speech. Uh, I gave the next speech in 1992, and the tradition is that you uh, read the speech prior to yours so that you can get a sense of how long and also what kind of tone and all that kind of stuff. And I thought his speech was terrific. Um, I wrote a very different kind of speech, but that's the way it's supposed to work. Um, so I and he and I were both on the faculty at Princeton at the same time. So um, I just learned a lot from his uh, stance towards uh, knowledge and his stance towards the world. I have a high estimation of him. Um, who else do I know? Darren Staloff, uh, a greatly underestimated brain. Um, he was a graduate student at Columbia when I was a graduate student, and he was just outright brilliant. Uh, he's like a little wizard, and uh, he's both uh, learned and articulate and uh, very, very dialectical. So I've learned a lot from him by disagreeing with him on just about everything. Uh, he's one of my oldest and closest friends, and uh, you should, good friends are at least in part defined by the fact that you learn stuff from So uh, I would say that Darren Staloff, who is a retired professor now like me at City College, he was a real light, and, uh, you know, not a lot of people know him. Who else can I think of? Uh, I was very impressed with Charles Larmore, who was a little bit older than I was. When we were at, I was at Columbia, he was an assistant professor. I, I assume he's emeritus now, too. I, I know he was at Chicago and Brown, uh, but he was a very brilliant individual to talk to. And, you know, that's something that I value very much. You know, the fact that he gave me some of his time in his office every week so that we could talk about whatever book he assigned. And I, you know, I enjoyed watching how his brain work because I learned a lot from that. Uh, his name sounded well, familiar. What did he teach? Philosophy. I see. Uh, also, I learned a lot from Frank Zappa. Not to take any hypocritical bullshit from anybody. And also from Lenny Bruce. He was the bad boy who said bad words and people got all hysterical and began clutching their pearls and put him in jail. I think he was basically right. It's all time to grow up, and we're, it's time to recognize that words, that there's an ontological difference between words and objects. Uh, in a liberal society, it has to be a free fire zone with regard to words, and it has to be a blanks only zone with regard to actions. <laughs> so we don't allow people to engage in violence, meaning real, literal violence, and we don't disallow people from saying stuff they want to because we think that's a way of avoiding real violence. Uh, 
so that's one of the things that I like about Lenny Bruce and I think that the current generation of political thinkers has badly missed in other words I like the stoicism of Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and instead of complaining about the things that the world has done and is doing to you step up take responsibility for your life and uh, stop whining yeah that's a, that's a good thing to learn I learned from Marcus Aurelius as well uh, he's a contemporary because he's eternal he's everyone's contemporary uh, yeah right uh, that's all I would say you know that, that I would say those are the things that interested me or influenced me does that make sense you know yeah. you'll have to splice that yeah I know I think I right. think that was an excellent answer okay good the audio. okay this next one says how much of philosophy is accepting reality as it is and how much is the way to change it what is reality what does your question refer to when you figure that out and you clarify that for me I'll be able to give you a clear answer as it is the, the question itself is opaque and any answer I give you is not going to be transparent thank you well that was very concise um, but once in a while I do that yeah. you know it's not a bad thing to do yeah I know, you know that it's not it surprises them you know and you can also you can rearrange the order of these things so that you know, maybe it begins to make a certain sense of those. You're a DJ now, too. Am I? Okay, and there's another one asking, what's the best way to approach a philosophical text? Well, any text that's worth approaching at all is worth approaching with humility and respect. Don't waste your time trying to find fault or trying to agree with a book that you've heard is agreeable or disagreeable. Instead, read the book for yourself. There's no substitute for that. And there's no royal road to becoming culturally competent. Uh, I wish that there was some elevator that I could give people that would allow them to go to the top floor of cultural competence. But I can't. There is no elevator, and if you're going there, then you have to do the grunt work, the legwork of climbing the stairs, okay? So, uh, paying your dues, climbing the stairs, is actually reading the books. There's no substitute for that. Now, I understand that most people don't have the time or the opportunity to do that. That's why it's so important, while we have young people who are still students, whose time is not direct or should not be directed elsewhere uh, for us to include this in their studies alright uh, so uh, the right way to approach a philosophical text is the right way to approach a great uh, religious or literary text as well you approach it with reverence you approach it with humility and you approach it with the assumption that um, the reason it's still around is because whatever this book contains is more and better than what's contained in your head currently so uh, learn something learn something from those you disagree with because it's an honor that you show them when you disagree with them you're taking them seriously learn from people you agree with but not too much always stop and ask yourself uh, am I subject to some sort of confirmation bias 
Is this what I would like to believe? Always stop and wonder when the things that you would like to believe turn out to be true. Doesn't mean they aren't true, but it's worth to stop. Uh, uh, it's worth it for people to stop and think. All right. Uh, we all have much to learn. All right. Uh, get rid of hubris. No arrogance. Approach the text diligently. Approach it humbly, and maybe the book will talk to you. Uh, that involves reading the right kind of books. Start now. Right. So back to Moby Dick. Okay. Well, uh, Moby Dick is the great American novel, and it's also the great American epic. Uh, the greatest of novels achieve. Uh, the status in a society that epic had in a modern society that epic had in the ancient and medieval world. Uh, <laughs> it is multiracial, multi-ethnic, uh, uh, global in its geography, geographical, but also in its intellectual reach. Uh, one of the permanently terrifying achievements of American romanticism is Captain Ahab. Uh, he's, he's a sign that romanticism has reached the end of its tether, that it's beginning to decay. Uh, when we had romanticism from William Blake, <laughs> we had uh, poems about little lambs and how innocent they are. Here we get a madman uh, driven by some sort of quasi-religious animosity towards the great whale who is actually a person who has intentions and does stuff for reasons and uh, uh, is in some ways the main character of the book. So, uh, Moby Dick is the all-American novel. Uh, it has the journey motif that connects so much of Western literature. We're all going to go on a trip. And uh, this is going to be a trip towards destruction. All right? And it'll be driven by the monomania and mad hatred and rage of uh, a mad captain. Uh, this is uh, uh, a fascinating set of character studies. You know, Pip is particularly interesting. He's the uh, black cabin boy, and he gets caught in the ocean and thinks he's going to drown and goes mad. But at the end... <laughs> The Pequod is killed, is destroyed by Moby Dick, and then everybody's in the ocean, and it's a gesture at how mad things really are. So we all become Pip the Crazy Cabin Boy. Uh, this is a, a novel everybody should read. I'm not sure that it is uh, uh, the I Ching, which some people treat it as, but uh, it's uh, a wonderful journey for the mind and uh, I did a lecture for Biblio with Biblioteca on that topic and uh, uh, it's worth looking up if you want to discuss this further
question is, what do you think about Lord Byron and Shelley? Well, um, Byron, Shelley, and Keats, too, are uh, among the greatest poets of the English language. Um, I guess I would toss in William Blake as well, but Byron, Shelley, Keats are uh, uh, the stuff out of which uh, operas are made. They live such dramatic, interesting lives, right? Uh, Mary Shelley produces Frankenstein, one of the great novels, uh, within the intellectual milieu of these romantics. And in general, romanticism produces great art and not so great uh, philosophy on the whole. Um, it taps into something deep and permanent in the human mind. The need for uh, affirmative, well-organized emotion. Now, romanticism pushes the limit of that into disorganization. <coughs> but the idea is that the Enlightenment and previous rational movements in culture were wrong-headed because they disrespected the other elements intrinsic to the human mind. And there's a considerable amount of truth in that, right? Unless your idea of a really good human life is, uh, if you remember Dr. Spock from the old first Star Trek movie or Star Trek series, <coughs> well, he was rational all the time. Um, he had problems with human beings and their emotions. Um, I'm not sure that that's my idea of an excellent human life. I admire his rational abilities, but uh, I'm not convinced that rationality by itself is sufficient for a satisfactory life. Uh, what I mean, so what I mean by that is this is the strong suit of romanticism. What the saying is, it's not that ra or many of them go extreme because they. One of the problems is when you try and be more than rational, you usually end up being less. So you're going to find a lot of suicides and a lot of sexual escapades. Uh, I believe Lord Byron had a long-term or a sexual affair with his half-sister, uh, which did not go well with the uh, with the moneyed classes in England. I believe there's some such story as uh, um, the Byron and his sister entering a, some kind of uh, gathering and everyone else going silent and then one by one walking up, standing up and walking out, leaving the two there. Uh, as for their poetry, um, I guess my favorite of the bunch would be Keats. Uh, his sonnets are particularly great. If you know on first looking into Chapman's Homer, uh, that's about first encountering Homer. And it's a, it's a big thing for any mind, but for the mind and soul of a poet, um, it's dazzling. So he says, Much have I traveled in the realms of gold and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been with which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Yet never did I breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman, that's the translator, speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the sky when a new planet swims into his ken. Or like stout Cortez when with eagle eye he stood silent on a peak in Darien. 
Now, he gets the guy wrong. It's not Cortez, it's Balboa. But the idea is, it's like the discovery of the Pacific Ocean. All right. Uh, the Romantics have a wonderful appreciation for the music of words and also um, for the sacredness of things. They often regard uh, mechanistic Enlightenment science as being soulless and as being uh, lacking in an appreciation of what is intrinsically valuable. Uh, in that respect, Romanticism is the uh, child, and I would call it the partially secular or pseudo-secular child of the Reformation, where religious transcendence is found not in the afterlife, but here, and it's usually found in the in the case of someone falling in love, which is the new version of a conversion experience. All right, so. Uh, the roots of Romanticism lie in the Reformation and uh, the emphasis on the soul and the non-rational parts of the psyche have much to say for them and they produce this outstanding art. Think of Beethoven's Ninth and Beethoven's First. The First Symphony sounds like Haydn. It's beautiful but not all that remarkable. The Ninth Symphony doesn't sound like Haydn. It sounds like God Almighty. And yes, it's a genuinely great piece of art outside the scale of the First Symphony. So uh, there's, there are things to be said for Romanticism. It has to be restrained by rationality. But the claim that rationality is the silver bullet which solves all our problems is the bluff that the Romantics are calling and they're right. 